So, who else was on the list? I asked Susan. We were riding in one of the fleet of coaches hired to take delegates to notable scientific research centres. There had been a short flight, cramped and uncomfortable, and then a frightening descent in vicious crosswinds. The pilot had swung the twin-prop aircraft from side to side, slipping the pressure off the control surfaces like a dog shaking water from its coat. But we made it, obviously. And then the coach, pushing through the pre-dawn Finnish landscape, the end of the forest and the start of the tundra. Invisible at the moment, but the sun would creep up in a couple of hours and we would get the full effect of thin lakes and distant lines of shadows that might be mountains. The whole picture as if some god with a liking for a silver and grey palette had smeared the country flat with a single, casual sweep of their thumb. Susan didn't answer me directly. She was still ultra-cautious about conversations, and although there were no guards shepherding us on the coach itself, there were two white SUVs on the road with us, one in front, one behind. She took out her notepad. Hendricks, Wills, Varma, she wrote. They're the top researchers in your field, the important ones. You assume, I wrote under her neat printed words. I felt like drawing a smiley face, and then I didn't anymore. I just felt ill. The Sky Machine by Martin Liddermont Performed by Jennifer Bardsley and Martin Liddermont Chapter 3 The Time Tubes Susan shrugged, tore out the page, folded it small, stuffed it into the empty drinks can on the seat ledge in front of her, and put her pad away. You're going to burn that too, I asked. She rolled her eyes and looked out of the window. At our last comfort stop, she had produced a lighter and had set fire to a similar can full of tightly compressed pages we'd collected between our conversation on the wheel and getting on the plane. That got a few looks, not least from the guards in their vehicles, but she just waved cheerily at them while the drinks can smoked and sputtered on a rock at the back of the lay-by where our coach had stopped. Susan, wearing her green puffer jacket, had sat on her heels and had beckoned the curls of smoke towards her face with both hands like a high-tech shaman. Religious thing, she called out to the guards. Protection on the road. Not that we don't appreciate you guys. They were silent. Is it wise to antagonise them? I whispered. What the hell? They know I know, she replied. They did indeed. But as Susan had told me, the safest place to hide was in plain sight, as part of a bigger group. And we still had no idea as to the nature of what we faced. If we were going to get to the truth, we needed to interact with our colleagues and use our networks. If we shut ourselves away in our homes or stayed with friends, would we be any less at risk? The fact that nothing dramatic had happened during the conference suggested that any surveillance, if it really existed, was general, and that only specific types of investigation might provoke a stronger response. 
Someone might be watching the world's most important climate scientists, but for some reason they were paying particularly close attention to a fringe group, and they also seemed to care about a very small subset of the community. Peter Hendricks, Gert Wills, and Reginda Varmer were my colleagues. Not exactly friends, but they were researching cloud formation, like me. If Susan was right, and major governments were starting to mobilise their resources to head off or curtail any damaging revelations, then they surely couldn't afford to cause too much of a public commotion. It was highly unlikely that any mainstream news channels would take our story seriously, but by now our watchers, assuming they existed, would be unsure about who we may have talked to. For them to spook the whole research community by moving against some of us would be to risk exposure, challenge and open discussion at a level where the media might eventually sit up and take notice. I thought I might call Reginda that evening when we got back to the hotel. I knew her best, and I wanted to see if she was having any trouble with the rock. The coach purred along, hot air blowing round our feet, a cool breeze in our hair. It should have all seemed very normal, but Susan had lifted me out of the normal again earlier that morning. Code phrase came through. He's got a message for me, she had written on her pad at breakfast. Her eyes had been bright, excited. Someone at the facility was going to meet us. Susan didn't have a name. She'd never even seen a picture of this person. But apparently he was a key contact. All very cloak and dagger. Well, there I was. Stuck on the bus and tangled up in some sort of trouble that this bunch, this group of scientists had got themselves into. Nothing to do but go with the flow. Susan had leaned back in her seat and I did the same, relaxing a little. The pre-dawn sky covered us and we both looked up through the glass roof light at the same time. And then we said the same thing in unison. Noctilucence. The clouds were like two great glowing patches of lichen above our heads. One was the celestial rose from Dante's paradise, filled with the soft colours of saints and martyrs, the tiny absolute dot of the primum mobile hidden away somewhere at its centre. The other was the shining form of Beatrice, wrapped in pleated brilliance, sad, lovely and unattainable. Then as the dawn light started to build under the horizon, the clouds became an opened shell, lined with mother-of-pearl, laced with folds of green and gold. Ultra-high altitude clouds, where there shouldn't be clouds. Hanging in air many times drier than a Saharan breeze. Molecules of shiny metals clinging to their ice crystals. Beautiful and heralding destruction. A crazing of frozen gases. Noctilucent clouds are exhalations from humanity's bad lungs as we cough up poison into the fragile shell that protects us from the sun's hard radiation. I've seen them once before, Susan murmured. On Orkney, a couple of years ago. Maybe it's a new covenant, but this time it's being made before the deluge. She had shut her eyes. The clouds are the highest you'll ever see, hanging on by their fingernails in the mesosphere. That's around 80 kilometers up. 
You can only see them when they catch the sunlight from below the horizon. Beautiful and dangerous, and needing the dark to expose them. Something nagged me then at the back of my mind. Not a bow, not a rainbow, Susan was musing. No, not that. A cloak, maybe. A cloak of many colours. God went in for those as well, didn't he? You worked on Orkney, I asked. I don't discuss deities. Still do, she said. I live there. Got all my experimental kit in Stromness, with wireless links to a network of monitors in the Pentland Firth. Ever been? To Orkney? I shook my head. It's beautiful and isolated, and very, very windy. Stromness is strange. It's a mix of active port, artistic enclave and tourist destination. These great cruise liners heave to and crowds of Americans descend to tick off the attractions and clog up the shops. There's lots of changes happening there. Where there was a baker's, there's now an art shop of the sort where they don't put prices on the ceramics in the window. Eh, the tourists are great for local businesses, I guess. But the islands have lost something in the process. What's the Pentland Firth? I asked. She laughed slightly. Some of the strongest ocean currents in the world run there, between the northern tip of Scotland and Orkney, she said. If that's your thing, then it's the place to be. How long has it been your thing? I asked. Five years now, she said. I consider it home. My family came to the UK decades ago before I was born. My parents live in Aberdeen, so it's easy enough to see them. I just get a flight. We went back to watching the noctilucent clouds fade away as the promise of light strengthened. For a long time they hung there, catching the pre-dawn on their underside. Then as the true dawn broke, they melted into the pale blue of the sky, and we stopped looking up and looked ahead instead, knowing we would soon be approaching Kipera. From a distance it resembles a single tooth of a saw blade, canted at an odd angle, steely grey and sharp-edged. There's a perimeter fence quite high, and a long service road with orange-tipped marker poles along its length. As you get closer, you see the accommodation area with its stacked units, and then, as you circle the site heading for the car park, you eventually realise that what looked like the main building is actually more of an entrance. It's a sculpted metal hood, hence the Finnish name, which means helmet. The structure protects the access to the true complex, which lies buried beneath the permafrost. Someone with a penchant for modern architecture suggested that the government might like to take advantage of the dramatic isolated setting to create something iconic, and they pitched for a design award. Science is 50% about publicity and sponsorship these days. We got off the coach and trooped up to the big doors. Even those had been given some special attention. They'd been decorated with the modern bas-relief of Thor battling the Midgard serpent. The creature had uncoiled itself from the roots of the world tree just long enough to be grappled by the thunder god, his hammer poised high to smash its head, his other arm held fast in the poisonous fangs. Both were doomed by the story. I recalled that there had been some debate when it was commissioned. A committee somewhere had got its guts in a knot over whether the imagery was excessively apocalyptic. Most people felt that it was entirely appropriate, given the centre's leading role in charting humanity's lemming dash to the edge of extinction. I'd been a couple of times before, and I knew the drill. 
They would meet and greet us just inside the doors in what was a disappointingly bare loading space. There were narrow gauge rails running down and away into the underground section and a pallet storage area stacked with equipment and supplies. The last time I was there they were checking a brand new diesel generator that had been delivered. It sat big and squat, painted bright blue and yellow, its thick protective plastic sheeting cut away in fleshy ribbons, radiating out from its base like ejector, as though it had fallen from the sky, impacting there on the rough concrete floor. The science took place deeper in the complex, in sterile spaces and glass-walled rooms where carefully filtered air circulated around neat rows of desks. And that science was mostly about storage and engineering, keeping things clean, even when you cut them open. Susan and I hung back slightly from the tour party, waiting for a chance to slip away unnoticed. We were waiting for her internet contact to make themselves known to us. When he found us, Susan's contact looked anything but a spy. He was young, a small, pale-eyed man who came round a corner pushing a trolley containing IT equipment. He had a wispy, frosted appearance, white skin and thin blonde hair, and a fragile stillness about him that reminded me of frozen reeds. He edged close to us as the party prepared to move on to see the pollen research facility. There was no special phrase or secret sign. He simply stood in front of us, blocking our way, his hands deep in the pockets of his lab coat as though he were trying to find some secret in there that he could hand to us. He nodded, we nodded, and then we followed him, letting him open door after door with his pass, always heading downwards. It seemed dreamlike. I stopped worrying about CCTV cameras after the fourth door and assumed no one was bothering to monitor the comings and goings of staff and visitors. After all, how much trouble did they ever experience in such a specialised and remote facility? I recognised where we were. This was the part of the site that stored the drill cores. That's why Kipro was built. It holds hundreds of thousands of the things, tubes of time dug from layers of ice and rock. The cores are bored out of the Arctic and Antarctic. They even have sedimentary mud cores from Venezuelan lakes, and there's ancient strata from under the North Sea. The ice core rooms are in the coldest part of the complex. Using the natural chilling property of the permafrost helps keep refrigeration costs down. It allows a series of large storage bays to be used rather than smaller, individually cooled ones. So the long pipes that hold the cores lie coated with hoarfrost on wooden racks stacked up to the ceiling and bound with blue plastic pull ties. Each pipe can be tens of metres long and they're very heavy. They're catalogued with barcodes printed on small tags that are clipped to their foil-capped ends. Looking at the cores head-on is like staring into a forest of sad, glistening eyes, each one dropping a single black-striped tear from its corner. An overhead crane was whining along the roof tracks as we eventually came through the airlock doors. We'd got prepared. We wore standard-issue visitor overalls, shoes muffled in plastic, our faces half-covered by masks. The positive air pressure made our ears pop slightly. A core tube was suspended from the crane and was being lowered towards one of the low-slung mobile transfer rigs they use at Kippera to wheel the cores into the cutting areas. Susan's contact walked towards the person operating the crane. They held the control box in one hand using their thumb on the buttons. From this distance I couldn't see whether that person was a woman or a man. 
The two of them had a conversation, and our guide gestured towards us, explaining something. The crane operator raised their free hand as if to say, all right, and let go of the control box, allowing it to dangle on its cables. He or she walked away and out through another airlock at the far end of the unit, energy-saving overhead lights switching on and then off as they went, creating a pool of brightness that stepped jerkily down the length of the storage bay. Our contact returned to us. We won't be disturbed, he said in a flat North London accent. Not a surprise. Lots of Brits worked at Kippera. Over the course of a year, dozens would come and go on research projects and study assignments. Our man led us into the bay under our own patch of light that followed us like a faithful animal. All right, he said, when we were standing shivering beside a tall stack of dark cores. Here's what we've found. It's more likely to be Russians than the Chinese, despite those acres of cloud-seeding generators on the Tibetan plateau. They've been at it for longer and have the advantage of control over large parts of the Taiga forest where they've been clearing at a massive rate. The destruction's huge and none of it is getting the press it deserves because Europe needs the oil and gas that's being exploited. The USA doesn't give a shit about the environment and the rest of the world's media are focused on the Amazon as always. Obviously this will be managed from the top. One of the three closest to the Kremlin, all oligarchs with deep international connections, so there's nothing we can do or say that hasn't been said or done at the United Nations. But we do have a company name. Hellazon. They're massive. They hold government contracts, and they've been shipping in the biggest equipment, including what looks like parts for an ionospheric heater. They almost certainly have the necessary infrastructure for stratospheric aerosol injection as well. The Tager's one of the biggest biomasses on the planet. It's fucking tragic. The Siberian spruce forests are so much pulp now. I had research there and it's been ruined. I'm sorry, said Susan, really sorry. But what about the rock? Yeah, said her contact. The blocking on the rock is some sort of weirdness around the login process that we don't understand. I've tried re-registering from different computers and different email addresses, but it's as if the system knows it's me every time. Paris and Alberta tried as well. No joy. But there was a file that Alberta got emailed to her from out of the blue from some anonymous hacker. Something about a sky machine. Susan stepped forward and gripped his arm. What, she said. What was it? What did it say? Her contact shook his head. We can't read it. It's in some sort of programming language that goes beyond anything that people in the group understand, he said. Well, I got it downloaded on a flash drive for you. He put his hand in his overall pocket. Oh, shit, he said. Left it on the fucking trolley. Don't move. Stay here where the CCTV can't see you. It's a blind spot. And keep your voices down. It'll only be a minute. He walked off round the stack and disappeared from view. I whispered, Paris and Alberta? It's like a novel. Susan winced. We never use names, just locations, she said. But David, Sky Machine. It might have been a message from Carl. He might have been trying to route it that way. Well, maybe there's something or maybe not, I said. 
I think this guy's got issues. And stratospheric aerosol injection, for God's sake? The Tibetan plateau? Are you buying into that idea that there's Chinese plans to create atmospheric rivers to shunt water vapour around regions? Susan was going to say something back, but she never spoke the words. One moment, we were about to argue, and then there was chaos. We had hardly any warning, just the abrupt clunk and whine of the overhead crane starting up again, followed almost immediately by a loud thud, and then a slithering sound from above our heads. We both looked up. I registered a movement, and then, I'm not sure, but I think Susan grabbed me. I don't remember how far we threw ourselves, but we were on the floor, knees and elbows burning, pulling each other down, scrambling, bodies moving instinctively. Then dozens of core tubes that had rolled sideways from their racks came crashing down in a rattling clatter that hurt the ears as it grew into a ringing, echoing roar of destruction. The storage bay vibrated with the sound. Some of the tubes had been cut for analysis and then resealed, and they split open along their lengths. Tons of carefully preserved and catalogued history smashed into the floor where we'd been standing, the cores destroyed, half cylinders of ice spilling out, flakes of white bursting into the air and spreading across the concrete. The bay filled with the powdered fragments like a snowstorm. We scrambled on hands and knees, struggling up to our feet so we could get as far away as possible from the avalanche of tubes. The last few were still rolling, throwing themselves after the rest and bouncing off the growing pile to hit the racks on the other side of the access space. My head swam, and it smelled like winter in the storage bay. Through the haze I saw two things. The big core tube still slung under the crane, swinging and twisting from its impact with the stack of cores on the rack, and our contact, sprinting towards the door through which we had entered. I raced after him, my plastic-covered feet slipping. Susan was doing better, she'd ripped her shoe covers off and was gaining on the man. We were shouting for him to stop. He could run surprisingly fast and he dodged through the narrow spaces with great agility, keeping a good distance from both of us. Absurdly, the rippling pattern of the automatic lights continued to follow us. They highlighted the chase like something from a flickering silent movie. But we were too slow. He darted through the airlock door, and as we slammed against it, we could see him on the other side, punching what was obviously a locking code into its keypad. The sleeve of his lab coat had ridden up, revealing a small black spiral tattoo on the underside of his wrist. Almost as soon as I absorbed that brief image, all the lights went out. We pounded on the door for a minute or two, then switched on the torches in our mobile phones and sat down on the floor. We shone the faint beams around, but there was no movement and no sound, apart from our breathing and the click and crack of ice. It didn't take long for someone to arrive. Kipra doesn't have security as such, so it was a manager and his staff wearing high-visibility vests and carrying big LED lamps. They manually cracked the airlock, and two of them escorted us out and back up to the labs while the manager and the others went to inspect the damage. We were given a hot drink and left by ourselves in a common room. Susan made a point of looking into the corners of the ceiling and rubbing one ear, so I stayed quiet and waited. After about an hour, the manager returned with the person who I recognised as Katrina Larson, 
the center's head of operations, in effect, the chief executive. She did not look pleased, and the conversation that followed was very difficult. Why had we gone to the core storage area? How had the accident happened? Were we trying to access the samples? Did we know what a narrow escape we had had? The centre had an unblemished safety record and now that was gone, out of the window, and reports would have to be filed. Our group tour had departed for its flight. But we would be found accommodation until tomorrow, and then we would need to return to Helsinki, and probably come back in the near future to attend an investigative hearing. Susan was apologetic and said that we had asked one of the scientists for a quick look at the core storage. He seemed to have panicked when the accident happened and he had run out through the airlock, presumably to get help. Katrina Larson looked puzzled. No one had raised the alarm, she said. Automatic sensors that monitor the stacked cores had triggered the alert, that and the noise and vibration which was felt through several floors. Who was it that we say let us in? We don't know his name, I said. He was young, quite skinny, blonde hair, very pale skin. Larson shook her head. We have nobody like that here, she said. Well then, look at your CCTV footage, I suggested. Larson glared at me. We already have, she said. You went into the storage area by yourselves, and we saw you trying to get out. But there was no one with you. No one at all. Sky Machine is written and produced by Martin Liddermont. Performed by Jennifer Bardsley and Martin Liddermont. Music by Purple Planet Music, Daniel Birch and the Pangolins. <laughs>